Hello, may I welcome you to episode 15 of Moving Matters. I am your host, Colin Wynn. I hope Moving Matters will give you an insight to others working or have worked in this wonderful industry as I delve into their past, their present and their future. You will find a new episode of Moving Matters on the second and fourth Thursday of each month. I thoroughly enjoyed recording this episode with my guest, an individual who is known by all within the moving industry. We discuss how he started in the industry, the challenges he's faced, his high points, the changes he would make within the industry, and as always, we end with a funny moving story regarding the smellies. My guest this episode is Steve Jordan, editor of The Mover magazine. Enjoy. Good morning, Steve. How are you today? Yeah, I'm great. Thank you. Thank you, Colin. And thanks for inviting me. It's a great it's a great honour to be here, really. My absolute pleasure. Welcome to Moving Matters. Can you tell everyone a little about yourself and the length of time in this industry? Uh, well, yes, I'm Steve Jordan. I was born in East Yorkshire, in Brough, on the banks of the River Humber in 1954. So I'm now 66 years old. I've been married twice. I've got four kids and seven grandchildren, so Christmas is expensive. <laughs> and, um, and I've been in the movie. My first job in the moving industry was um, was in August 1974. So I've been around this industry for four, 47 years. Is that something like that? Wow. So let's 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 talk about because obviously you're in two industries, but the the second one is associated with the removal industry. Mm. How did you get started in the moving industry? Because I didn't realise that your background was actually in the removal industry. Yeah, it was a, it, it, well as almost everybody else really in this industry did. I got, I got in it by accident. I, when when I left school, I was um, I went in the navy and I, I worked for the for the New Zealand Shipping Company uh, as a as a cadet. The company had just been taken over by P&O at that time. And we set sail in, in August. And the previous Easter, I'd, I'd met a girl. Uh, there's always a girl in the story somewhere, isn't there? But, oh, there's, a, there's always a girl involved. No, it's just the way it works. Anyway, I, I went off to Australia as a cadet with the, with the New Zealand Shipping Company. Came back eight months later, I think it was, something like that. And uh, it was quite obvious, really, from... From the body language and what have you, that um, that either I stayed at the sea or or I or I, um, I stayed with the girl. I couldn't do both, and so I chose the girl. And I, I left the navy. I I actually worked in a pub for quite a long time, and then we decided we were going to get married, me and this girl. And so um, I my I needed to find a proper job, and my mum, bless her, was looking through the local paper and she saw an advertisement with a P and O flag written on it. And uh, of course, I'd worked for P&O before. And she said, "Yes, hey, Stephen, there's a job that you can do. It's got P&O on it." So I applied, and it turned out that it was for a job as a shipping clerk with a company called Scott Pack in Chesham in Buckinghamshire. And they, oh, that's course, a name from the past. Yeah, and they they were they were part of P&O at the time. And so I applied for the job, and miraculously, I got it. I don't know why, but I did. So what did your job involve there? 
Well, I, I was a shipping clerk, um, and you know, I used to do the paperwork for shipping. I mean, a lot of it was um, a lot of it at that time was military work that they were doing. But do you know, I, I I've told this story before, and it sort of it resonates a bit with what some of your other guests have have, have said because I remember the first job that I ever did on that first day, and my boss at the time gave me a whole pile of paperwork, which were reports from surveyors who had done surveys for, for jobs that were for people that were migrating to Australia and New Zealand. And my job, really, I think, was just to give me something to do, really, uh, was to to look through these reports, add up the volume that the, they had come to, and divide the volume into the price. And he said to me, uh, he said, if it, it should work out at about £2.50 a cubic foot, uh, and if it doesn't, then come and see me and let's work out why it is, because I want to make sure they haven't made a mistake. Now, the interesting thing is that, I, I mean, I'm not in the industry as such now, but I suspect that anybody that is will tell me that if you do that same sum today, it's about a fiver. So in 47 years, the price of moving between the UK and Australia has doubled. Now, can you tell me anything else that has only doubled in that time? By rights, we should be charging fifty pounds a cubic foot or something. Oh, absolutely! And uh, and of course, you know, people always say, "Well, you know, that's that's the price that the customers will will pay." Well, I promise you, in nineteen seventy four, they were paying for the for those moves out of the proceeds of their house sales, when a house was worth about five thousand quid. You know, now that same house is worth about three hundred thousand quid, and yet they will apparently still only pay twice as much. Frankly, I don't believe it, and I never did. But there we are. That's how I started. So like me, you've never worked on any trucks? Oh, I did, yeah. Mm. Oh, you've yeah. worked on trucks? Oh, oh okay. I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll give you that then. I thought it was just a shipping clerk. So you, you did, you've did done the trucks? I haven't done trucks. I've, no, I don't do manual labour, and that doesn't suit me. Yeah, no, what happened actually, Colin, was, was I'd, I'd been there for about six months, and then my, my boss got sacked. And I was a bit worried because I was newly married and, and it was a it was a you know it was an important job for me this. And so he lived just up the road from me. And so I walked up to his house that day, uh, that evening, and knocked on his door and said, Excuse me, but why did you get the sack? Because I'm bothered. You know, if there's if there's something going on, I'd rather know about it, really. And he said, Oh, you know, don't worry about it, son, it's okay. So there's nothing you need to worry about. So I put my foot in his door and, and said, No, I'm sorry, but I need to know. And he invited me in, and we sat there and listened to Gordon Lightfoot records and drank lots of beer until about two o'clock in the morning. And by the time we'd got that far, we decided we were going to set up a, a company in competition. Um, <laughs> and, and, and the really miraculous thing, Colin, was that the following morning, we woke up with a hangover, but we still felt the same way. And so we did. And we started, it was me and this guy called Glyn Thomas, and a guy that worked at Scott Pack called Jimmy Hanna. And we all came together and um, and we started a company called Avalon Overseas. And uh, that was, uh, they were mainly doing military work in the early days. And then we got into migration work and so on. We finally sold that business in 1989 to Paul Evans at TransEuro. And, uh, and I stayed there for a while and then left in the early 90s. So that's a very short version of a very long story. And I believe you have worked with the BAR Overseas Group. Yeah, it was it was um, it was when we, we were, I was at Avalon, and, and I, it was in the nineteen eighties. 
And I decided that I really wanted to get more involved in the industry as opposed to the business. And, and of course, I went along to, to the conferences, to the BAR conferences, and thoroughly enjoyed them. But I wanted to get more involved. And so I don't, actually now I can't remember how I did it, but, but I um, obviously, you know, rattled a few cages and people invited me to, to go along. And, and um, I became a member of the Overseas Group Council that uh, ran and still does uh, run that side of things. I then joined the what they call the Freight Negotiation Committee. It was our job to negotiate the freight rates for the for the whole industry, really, for the whole all, all BAR members for each year. And we would we would negotiate with the shipping lines, with the um, uh, Australian lines and the Canadian lines, and so on, you know, uh, to get the best rates. And I was part of that team, and I, I used to negotiate the the uh, the, line, the the rates to Australia and New Zealand. And I then subsequently became chairman of that group. And, and so there were people, I was working with um, some real sort of icons of the industry, really, I suppose. People like Paul Mason, he was on the committee with me. Ted Philp was there. Uh, and and lo- lots, of, lots of other people, there were about six of us. And we used to, and I was a chairman of it, and we used to run this, uh, this thing and, 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 and negotiate the rates. But you know, it was really frustrating uh, because... Of course, it was a different world in those days. And in those days, you, you, you could dictate to companies what they may or may not do. And we used to negotiate these rates and make them mandatory throughout the BAR overseas group, um, which, of course, you really couldn't do anymore. But we used to, we used to do it in those days. But what happened was, was that they, they, used to, they used to use these rates that we'd, we'd negotiated and sweated over for, for, for months and then use them as a, as a sort of a base then to go back to the shipping lines and negotiate their own rates from. And, and it used to be very frustrating. And so I once said to BAR, you know, we, we can't be adding this. We can't negotiate these rates and then have people just doing as they please. We need to throw them out of BAR if that's what they're going to do. And BAR, of course, quite rightly came back to me and said, no, we're not going to do that. Uh, companies are members of BAR for all kinds of reasons, um, not just the, the shipping rates. So me being a little bit bolshy in those days and a bit full of my own importance, as it were, said, right, well, in that case, we should make them members of something we can throw them out of then. And that's where the Movers Trading Club came from. We then invented this separate organisation that wasn't the BAR overseas group and wasn't BAR. But if we wanted to, we could chuck them out if they didn't toe the line. Now, of course, things are very different now, and that's not the way the whole thing works. But that's the way it started. More Shanks was on that team as well. I think we started the whole thing off. I can't remember when it was. It must have been about 89, 90, something like that. So the Movers Trading Club, mm. which was spoken about in episode 13 with mm. Tony Tickner of the Eurogroup, was basically your fault. Yeah, I'm sorry it was, yeah. I apologize <laughs> apologize well, to everybody. <laughs> it was obviously needed because it's used today. Yeah, it's still going today, and uh, I mean, it's slightly different. It's still going very strong today. Mm, yeah, yeah. So can you tell everyone about your current company and the services it offers? Yeah, I, I decided to get out of the moving industry in about 1992 or thereabouts, and I wanted to do something different. I, uh, <laughs> the, the, the story was that, that um, I used to do writing for, for the uh, – for the migrant press, and I used to write the advertisements for for Avalon, 
And I once took along some copy to to a, a designer uh, that was designing an advertisement for us. And he said to me, um, who wrote the copy for you? I said, well, I did. You know, why? What, what, what's wrong with it? And he said, no, nothing wrong with it. It's just that, um, you know, we, we, we generally pay people quite a lot of money for doing this kind of thing. And I forgot it and, you know, moved on. And, and, um, and then about two years later, when I'd had a particularly bad day at the office, I phoned him up and I said, just exactly how much do you pay? This kind of thing. And he told me, and I thought, well, do you know, with a bit, if with a bit of luck, I could, I could do that. And so I left the industry and set up in, in my garden shed. Now, I, I didn't have any money. I'd just been through a very difficult divorce, and I didn't have any money at all. The only money I had between me and starvation was about 500 quid that I'd been saving to, uh, from the children's family allowance to buy clothes for them. And so I bought a, a second-hand computer and some stationery and a, and a fax machine and started a copywriting business. Miraculously, it worked. And I've been, frankly, I've been doing it ever since. What happened then was, was some years later, I got the opportunity to, um, I'd been working for um, the Omni organization. And they had a magazine that they called the Omni Observer. And they asked me, it was Paul Mason, actually, who was the treasurer of Omni at the time, uh, asked me to edit it uh, and to produce it for them, which I did. And then subsequently, uh, the RNS, uh, when Stephen Webb retired, asked me if I would if I would edit the RNS. And I realized then that I couldn't do uh, all the things that I did and the RNS as well by myself. And so I then started a small company and my brother David joined me and we called it the Words Workshop. And that's my business now. And we, we do PR uh, writing for companies in all kinds of industries and all kinds of writing, really brochures and websites and things like that. Uh, my biggest client today is a German engineering company. It's nothing to do with the moving industry. And that's what the Words Workshop does. And and the, the Words Workshop has, as one of its products, the Mover magazine, which um, which we started a little bit later. So how long were you the editor of the BAR's Removals and Storage magazine? And what made you decide to publish your own magazine for the industry? Well, I, I was a, I joined. I, I became the editor in two thousand five, and I stopped being the editor in two thousand eleven, which was when I started the Mover magazine. I absolutely adored being the editor of the RNS. I really felt like a square peg in a square hole. You know, it was it was exactly the job for me because um, you know I'd been in the business and I knew that I could write and I was interested in people and so on, and I absolutely adored it. But the the reason that I that I got out was was that you you may remember that um, about that time the the BAR had a new boss a chap called Stephen Vickers uh, and Stephen and I frankly didn't get on very well um, I didn't really like him very much and I I don't really think he liked me very much either and we we just didn't get on and we had a very difficult relationship in those last few years i think he joined in 2008 and the, the, those three years were diff- very difficult so i decided that that i would consider starting my own magazine and i i wanted to start it anyway because because it i felt the industry there wasn't there was nothing in the industry at all that was independent every magazine that for the industry was in some way linked to some kind of association, the Feedy Focus for Feedy, the Portal for the, for IAM, the INS for, for BAR and so on. There was nothing that was independent and therefore could give a voice 
to anybody that wasn't a part of any of these organisations. And of course, there's a whole part of the industry that is nothing to do with trade associations. And I wanted to give those people a voice and those people an outlet. So I've been thinking about starting a magazine for some time anyway. But then I won't go into the details because we don't really need to. But there was one day when we had a straw that broke the camel's back between Stephen and I. And I just decided, no, enough's enough. And at that time, the, the, the removals and storage provided my little company with about 50% of its profit. And I said goodbye to it. And that was one of the many occasions in my, in my life, Colin, when I did something that I have subsequently described as jumping off a cliff in the dark. It, it, it's, it's, yeah. it, you've no idea how high the cliff is or when you're going to hit the bottom or whether it's going to be a soft landing or not. No, so that's just, a big decision to make. Well, it was. And, you know, how, how you know, if any company that just decides to, in effect, sack half its customers uh, yeah. is going into a very dangerous place. But I did it, and I never for a second thought that it was the wrong thing to do. And it has always been successful. So fortunately, it was. So I, I, I thank Stephen Vickers, because if it hadn't have been for him, uh, I would never have started the Mover magazine. So thanks, Stephen, if you're listening. Were you censored, in a way, with R&S magazine? Um, not, not at the beginning, I wasn't, no. Um, that, that was part of the, of the problem later. Um, although only a, a small part. I mean, I wouldn't want to go into all the difficulties because you know how these things are. It's just it's all water under the bridge now. But at the time, yeah. I, I, the, the only reason I asked the question was you normally find that a magazine that's by a trade organisation mm. is censored to a degree, and that they only want the trade organisation's news out there. And, and I mean, yeah. there used to be that other magazine, wasn't it, en route, which yes. didn't stay around very long. It was mm. never very many pages thick. No. It stopped when we started The Mover. The organisation that ran it uh, came to see me uh, when we started The Mover and we were looking for some kind of um, cooperation between us and uh, I decided that wasn't the right thing to do because it would compromise our independence. And I, I think at that point they decided to stop doing it. So, uh, yeah. But no, it, it, generally I wasn't really censored. But in, inevitably, the, the with, with any publication that is that is run by an organisation, it, it has to be biased in some way. Absolutely. It, it, it is. I mean, it's not a criticism, it just is. And that was why that was part of the reason for wanting to start the mover, so that we were not biased. We could write anything, as long as it didn't put us in court, and as long as it was you know, legal, decent, honest and truthful, then there was no reason to, to not publish anything. And that's the way it's always been ever since. And I think that's part of the attraction of it. I think that's why people like it, because they know that everything is, is there open for grabs and we're not, we're not afraid of being controversial sometimes if you need to be. And, and if you're running a, an organisation such as the BAR or IAM or whatever, then it's much more difficult to be controversial. But for me, it isn't. Yeah. It, for me, it's just if I think it's a good idea, then it is. And if I don't, then well, we don't do it. So the mover started in 2011. Yeah. We're now in 2021. Yeah. So this will be your 10th year. Yeah, well, in April. When will be your 10th year episode? Yeah, it'll be April, the April issue. Well, that will be the first of the 11th year, actually. So it's March, the March issue. What made you decide to go digital over printed? Well, do you know, that was something that, that, well, the truth is that when we started, 
I was toying with the idea of only going digital right from the beginning. Right. But I okay. didn't think that that was right. I didn't, I didn't think the market was ready for that. Uh, I thought that was too early. And so we, we, we did the, the hard copy, but it was always published online as a PDF in a PDF format. And so right from the beginning, most of our, we only ever distributed the, the hard copy of the, the mover in the UK purely because it was just too expensive to deliver it all around the world. We did have some subscribers elsewhere in the world, but, but generally it wasn't. So it was uh, published as a PDF online. And right from the beginning, we always had more readers outside the UK than we had in the UK because they were reading it online. But it wasn't a proper online publication. It was just a PDF of the, uh, the, the paper one. And I always wanted to, to try to, to, to make it a proper online publication. And the reason we decided to do it was, I can't tell you the, the reason that we decided to do it when we did it. It just felt right. We just felt that it was the right time to do it. But the reason that we wanted to do it was because if you have a digital publication, then the whole thing becomes three-dimensional. You, you, the, with a digital publication, for example, all the, the email addresses are live email addresses. All the website addresses are live website addresses. And so you can, you, can, you can put links into it. So, for example, if I'm talking about a story about a piece of government legislation, I can link to the actual government document if I want to. Now, I wouldn't want to publish that, but I can link to it. We can include video in there, which, of course, you can't do in a paper publication. And, of course, it also means that you can then make it easy for people to be able to, by using an app, you can make it easy for people to read on their telephones. And our research was saying that more people were wanting to read the magazine on, on telephones. And now there's roughly about 30% of our readership are reading the magazine on their phone, which I find slightly extraordinary, but they, but they do. The biggest number read it on desktop machines, even so. But that's the reason that we, that we wanted to do that, because it just opens the whole thing up to a much wider audience and gives both us as the publisher and also our advertisers as a, a, much, um, a much more three-dimensional product to use. The app is, it means that people can read the magazine on, on a phone, on an ordinary phone, and the, the way that the app is designed is that if you just tap on one of the stories, then it comes out in a, a much more bold, easy-to-read font. And so even if you're somebody like me that doesn't have particularly good eyesight, uh, you can actually read the magazine on the phone. And it's, it's brilliant, really. Has social media had any effect on your business? And if so, do you have any tips for our business owner listeners? Well, there you go. Um, yes, is a short answer. Uh, it's had a huge difference, um, not well, partly for the magazine, but, but the biggest difference that it made with my business was with the the writing side of the business, the PR side. It used to be in in the old days when we first started that we we made most of our our work was writing stories for companies and having them published in the press for nothing. And so, you know, we would we would charge a company for writing a story, and then it was our job to circulate it and to, um, to get those stories published in the press free of charge. In fact, we used to do that very service for, for BAR. We used to send something like 2,000 press releases a, a week out to, um, 
local newspapers and magazines all over the UK. That was our main business. When social media came along, it made a big difference because the perception then became that anybody that was wanting to do their own publicity didn't need to employ a company to do it. All they had to do was to dream up a piece of news, uh, put it on Facebook or LinkedIn or, or whatever, and the job was done. And of course, the perception then was, was that you didn't need a company to do it for you. You could do it yourself. And so there were many companies in our business that just failed. I mean, they just, they, they just went out of business because people were doing their, their public relations in that way. And really, the, the, the message that I would have to, um, to listeners would, would be that the social media is a very powerful thing. And I understand why they would do that. I wouldn't want to discourage them from promoting themselves on social media. However, it is a very different medium from the more traditional press. And the difference is that anybody can, can stand up and say something good about themselves and can say how, you know, how clever they are, how good they are. But people don't always listen and they don't always believe them. And if you post something on social media, then it's you posting something about yourself. So you're just sort of bragging, really. Whereas if that same story is published by somebody else in a publication, then what that means is that that other person thinks that the story is sufficiently interesting for their readers to read. And so it's somebody else saying something good about you, which is far more powerful than you saying the same thing yourself. And that, I think, is something that is missed. And I know that's missed because I watch social media and I very often see companies publishing stories on social media. And I think, why didn't they send that to me? I would have published that in the magazine because I think it's really interesting, but they never sent it to me. And, and people often ask me, you know, how do you get a story published in the magazine? Well, the answer is really, really simple. You just send the thing to me. If you don't send it to me, I don't know about it. But if you do send it to me, then I will look at it. I will uh, find out whether I think it's true. Uh, I will see if it's complete. And if it is, then I will publish it. And it will be far more powerful for you as a promotional tool than publishing the same thing on social media alone. So that would be the message, not to not use social media, but to just to use it as part of the promotional mix of what you do, not as the whole thing, which it seems to me a lot of people do. So if anybody has any stories, put them on social media, but also send them to Steve Jordan. Yeah. We'll look at them, hopefully publish them in The Mover. Do you remember um, that, um, that poem, and I can't remember all of it, the, the Rudyard Kipling poem about you know, six good men and true, you know, who, what, why, when, where and who, um, or, or whatever it is. The, the open questions that all salesmen learn. All you have to do, I don't expect people to write the story for me, all they have to do is to send me that basic information. Now, what happened? When did it happen? Why did it happen? Who was involved? And so on. Those six questions. If you answer those six questions and send me a photograph that I can use, then it's very likely you'll get the story published. Very simple. Well, hopefully some of our listeners will send you some more stories. Maybe. <laughs> so what challenges have you had to overcome? Ah, uh, well... Well, there have been many of them, um, Colin. I, I, you know, I've told you about the jumping off the cliff in the dark stories. 
just simply um, starting the the writing business, you know, with with no money other than my children's family allowance was jumping off a cliff in the dark. So that was a challenge to be overcome. There have been many personal challenges along the way, of course, um, with four children and seven grandchildren, then challenges come up and uh, they are very, very much more difficult to deal with than anything that I have ever experienced in business. But I'll tell you about one because I think I think that um, that people might be interested. In. I, I've always been a sailor. Ever since I was four years old, I've, I've been a sailor. And I was out in um, 1982. I went sailing with a friend of mine. And we went sailing from the Hamble Jetty near Southampton. We went away for a week. And it was the occasion of the parade of sail of the tall ships race. And on the Wednesday... I decided that there was a friend of mine that it was my salesman actually at, uh, at Avalon who was also had been in the Merchant Navy, and I thought it might be quite fun if if he if we picked him up and took him out for the day to see the parade of sail for the tall ships race. And so we uh, we picked him up that morning from the jetty at the Hamble, and he he was a bit of a joker, you know, as, as all salesmen are. And uh, <laughs> he, he he got on the on the boat and he said he said Steve, I've got something to tell you. He said. Um, the warehouse burnt down at the weekend. And I said, stop messing about and get your life jacket on. You know, I mean, I just didn't believe him. I thought it was just messing about. But it turned out it was true. And, I, of course, I got off the boat and went back to the office that didn't exist anymore. It had been the subject of an arson attack. The warehouse was laid out in such a way that all the offices were built out of wood inside the warehouse. The warehouse was full of wooden boxes, full of furniture wrapped in paper. And anybody that's experienced it will know that those kind of warehouses go up like a Roman candle when they do. It happened at the weekend, so all the vehicles were parked immediately adjacent to the warehouse. So most of them had blown up as well. And it was before the days of computerization, of course, in 1982. So all our records were paper records, all of which had gone because the offices were there as well. By the time I got back on the Wednesday, because we didn't have mobile phones, so I wasn't aware of it, my boss, Glyn Thomas, had managed to secure a small office from a friend of ours at Interdean that was just down the road from where we were, and a corner of a warehouse, and a phone line. So I got in there, and Glyn was fairly upset about things, of course, as he would be. And, uh, and we sat in this office, the two of us, having no idea what jobs we were supposed to be doing, what goods had been in the warehouse. We'd lost absolutely everything. Everything had gone. And we sat there um, getting very heavily involved in a bottle of whiskey and staring at a telephone. And we could do nothing but wait for the phone to ring with somebody saying, where are you? And then we could deal with it. But unless that phone rang, we couldn't do anything. And we we had more or less decided that that this was too hard. It was it was more than we could deal with to try to rebuild this business. And then there was a tap at the door, and a chap came in, a fellow called Ken Reeves, who was our warehouse foreman, who was the bolshiest old bastard you've ever met in your life. <laughs> he, he, he genuinely was. He was one of those people that everything is too much trouble for, you know? If he could find a way of, of objecting to doing something, then he would. He was brilliant. And he was a genius, but he was he was just a very very difficult character. And anyway, uh, Ken came in and he said, um, "He said sorry to bother you, governors." He said, "But um, I've just been having a chat with the lads, and we've decided 
that if it'll help, we'll all work for the next month for nothing. Oh, wow. Now, when that kind of thing happens, you can't give up, can you? Absolutely not. So we um, finished the bottle of whiskey, decided to carry on. We managed to get some money from the insurance company and we carried on. And we sold the business seven years later. It's true that it suffered badly because of the fire. And we didn't finish up with the kind of business that we'd had before. But it was, uh, you're talking about challenges. And my goodness, that was a challenge. Yeah, I bet. Mm. And if you could change anything from the past, what would it be? Apart from that fire, obviously. Well, I'd probably change the fire, yeah. Well, you know, the traditional thing, Colin, if anybody ever asks you a question like that, is people will almost always tell you nothing. Uh, and, of course, the reason that they will do that is because if you change anything, we have these, these forks in our lives, don't we, where, where you, can, you can change something very minor happens. I remember when I, when I met my first wife, the only reason I met her was because a friend of mine got a puncture in his push bike. You know, if he hadn't got a puncture in his push bike, we would never have met. I won't bother telling you the story, but you get my drift. You know, <laughs> there, are things, there are things that happen in our lives that, that just send us in one particular direction or another. And if you didn't do those things, then your entire life would have been different. Um, and one of those forks in the, in, the, in, the, in the road for me was the one that I already described to you, was when I came back from New Zealand on the boat and decided to choose the girl rather than the merchant navy. If I'd have changed any of those things, if I'd changed anything, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now, I wouldn't be talking to you, I wouldn't have the children that I have now, you know, everything would be so different. And I wouldn't, of course, want to change any of that. However, I am one of these people that quite enjoy change. I play a game, you know. I don't know whether you've ever played this game, but it's a great fun. It's a great, I recommend this game to, to lots of people. You know, when, you, when you, you go to a meeting and you all come out for a coffee break and everybody goes back in again and they always sit at the same chair, don't they? If, even yeah. if, even if, it, if it's a big conference, they'll all go back into the room. There might be 200 people there and they'll sit in the same chair. Well, I always make a point of sitting in a different one. And, of course, what that does is mess everybody up because the person that was sitting in that chair can't sit there, so they have to go somewhere else. And then the one that they were sitting in has to go somewhere. So the whole room changes around. And I do it on purpose because I think if you do that, it gives you a totally different perspective of, of what you're looking at. So I do it on purpose, and it's quite fun to watch the expressions on people's faces when that happens. So I quite enjoy change. So with a serious answer to your question, I think if I could change something, I would go back to the day when I chose the girl over the Merchant Navy, and I would choose the Merchant Navy because I just think that my life would have been completely different and equally fascinating, but in a totally different way. And I think I'd quite enjoy that. Let's hope she doesn't listen to this, Steve. No. (laughs) (laughs) So what is your high point of being in the industry? Oh, I'm expecting that to come up. Oh, and you can have many, by the way. You can well, have no, many. but I, 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 I'm, I'm hoping that it's just around the corner. I, I think, um, and I know I have gone off about it quite a bit, but this, this jumping off cliffs thing, that is the most terrifying time, but equally the most fascinating. And it's when the adrenaline is really, really pumping. And I think those times have got to be the high points. I mean, when we decided to, to start the Mover magazine, for example, it was something that nobody had ever done before. We were doing it under a certain amount of stress. We had to do it very quickly. It was financially very risky. 
and really exciting. And I think that's got to be the high point. It's not a sort of an accolade. I mean, nobody's ever presented me with a prize for doing anything, for example, uh, and almost certainly never will. So there's no of those sort of high points. But those high points, when the adrenaline is, is really pumping and you know that you're living on your wits, that, I think, is the, is the high point for me. What one thing would you change within the moving industry? Uh, well, that's an interesting one. There are two things, but I have listened to your podcast before, and, and I, I don't want to particularly go over something that somebody else has done, but this whole business about the fixation with price and, and so on is, is a big problem in the industry. And I think the, the quality of salesmanship in this industry is appalling to the point where we've managed to talk the entire industry down. As I was rather saying earlier on with my, my example of the £2.50 per cubic foot shipping. To Absolutely. I think that's... Um, that, but lots of people have said that before. There is something, something, something else that I think is appropriate, particularly appropriate now. And this is this fixation that the industry has with... Length of service. I mean, one of the first questions that you asked me when we started talking was how long have you been in the business? And that sort of length of service is something that is very much revered in the industry. And, and I think it should be. I mean, experience is, is very valuable. And I think we need to, to cherish the people that have been in the industry for a very long time and to respect their wisdom and, and experience. However, I don't think this industry really cherishes the youth of the industry in the way that it should do. And I think the, the industry changes. I mean, from the, the beginnings of the Industrial Revolution and probably before, the rate of change of technology has accelerated and is continuing to accelerate. We are not at any kind of pinnacle now. It will continue to do that. And to be able to keep up with that and to take full advantage of it, I think it needs the impetuousness of youth to be able to do that. And I think that this industry will be far better in the future if people were to respect and appreciate the contribution that young people are able to make and not get quite so fixated on age and, and length of service. I mean, for example, people will often say to me things like, oh, Mr. Smith, you know, he started the company in 1942 and he still comes into the office, uh, even though he's 103 years old and, and you know, he still <laughs> runs a place you know, with a rod of iron. Well, I'm sorry, but that's not good enough. I just don't think that's good enough in today's world. You need to have people who have got the fingers on the pulse, who have got the drive and the enthusiasm to do things differently because there's no way that this industry is going to be the same in five years' time as it is today. And I don't think if you've been in the business for 50 years as I have, then you're really qualified to be making some of those decisions. Interesting. Very, very interesting, Steve. So what advice would you give to a young Steve just starting out in the industry? <laughs> um, well. The advice that I would give to, to anybody, you know, I mean, who am I to give advice to anybody? But the, the, I said I've got four kids, and the piece of advice that I've always given to all my children was always that 
I always think that to be an exceptional employee in any walk of life, what you need to do is three things. I think you need to turn up on time, you need to smile, and you need to do your absolute best every day. And if you do that, then you will be an exceptional employee. Because in my experience, most people don't do those three simple things. And if you do those things, then people will recognize it and they will appreciate it. And the world will open up for you if you do those things. And there's one other thing, Colin, as well. I, you know, I'm a storyteller, so forgive me if I, if I tell these things through stories. But uh, there was one thing that happened to me some years ago, many years ago, that had a dramatic effect on my life. And that was, it was when I was doing this work with BAR and I was in the overseas group council. And I'd obviously shot my mouth off about something. And, and uh, Colin Quinton, if you remember, uh, you remember. Oh, my word, that's a name from the past as yeah, well. Yeah, you remember Colin. Yes. Well, Colin picked up on it. And he asked me if I would go to a BAR conference and stand on the stage and talk about it. Now, all these years later, I can't remember, even remember what it, what it was. But it was, it was something to do with shipping. And anyway, I, I agreed, and I, I walked up onto this stage. It was at Stratford-on-Avon at the conference in Stratford in 1900 and frozen to death. I can't remember. <laughs> but, but I, I, walked, I walked up onto this stage in my best suit, absolutely terrified. Uh, I'd never given a speech before, and my palms were sweating and a white mist in front of my eyes. And I stood there, and I did this presentation and I've no idea what happened. It was in the days when you'd get four or 500 people at a, at a BAR conference anyway. I've no idea what I was talking about, but whether it made any sense. I don't even know if anybody applauded at the end. But I, <laughs> I remember I walked off the stage, and as soon as my, my foot touched the Axminster, I saw walking towards me Ted Philp. Now, Ted Philp, as many will remember, was the absolute king of shipping. There wasn't anything about the whole business of shipping that Ted didn't know. And he walked up to me and I thought, oh my goodness, I'm in for it now. And he held his hand out and he shook me by the hand. And he did something extraordinary. He asked my advice. Now, what on earth was Ted Philp doing asking my advice? I was a 20-something upstart who knew nothing about anything. And yet he asked my advice. And the reason he asked my advice was because I'd stood on the stage and done a presentation. And I suddenly realized then that if that half hour on that stage could convert me from somebody who nobody knew into an expert, that Ted Philp would be asking my advice. My goodness, that was a powerful thing. And Absolutely. so I went, I went straight from that place and I got a Dale Carnegie public speaking course. Because uh, I thought, I'm never going to be faced with that situation again where I am so terrified to stand on the stage. And I did it, and I became a trainer for Dale Carnegie. And later, David and I, my brother and I, started our own public speaking training school to teach people how to do that kind of thing. We don't do it anymore, but, um, but we, we did it for many years, and we trained thousands of people to uh, stand on stage confidently and, and do that because I felt that it was so important. And so my advice to a younger me would be to get a public speaking training course and take every possible opportunity to stand on a stage 
and tell people how you feel about things. And you will suddenly become an expert as well. Where do you see yourself and the industry in the next five years? Let's deal with you first. Where do you see yourself, Steve? Well, if I'm anywhere, then I'll be delighted. Uh, uh, <laughs> particularly now with this pandemic going around, it's nice to wake up every morning. And so if I'm anywhere in five years' time, I'll, I'll be very pleased. I don't have anybody to hand the, the, the magazine on to because my children are all doing other things and are successful at it. So um, I, I don't know where the magazine will be. I think it will be a great shame having you know, survived for 10 years and been as well received as it has been. Um, then it would be a shame if it just went away. But clearly, you know, I'm not going to live forever and I'm not going to always be able to do it. Uh, I would like to think that in five years, uh, all being well, that I still would be doing it. But quite frankly, if somebody knocked on my door and said, um, we'd be interested in, in carrying it on for you, then I'd be happy to talk to them because I think it's, uh, I think it's a valuable product in being the only independent magazine. And I would like to see it continue after I'm able to do it. As far as the industry is concerned, uh, do you know, you know, I said before, I think we're going through such a period of change and this virus that we've been dealing with has accelerated that rate of change. And, and I think that the industry will be, need to be very flexible in the future. It will need to become more efficient. It will need to use technology far more than it does now. And people are going to have to think laterally about not so much what they should do or what they, what they need to do, but to think more about what is possible and push the boundaries of what is possible. Because if, if they don't, if, the indus- if this industry doesn't, then there will be a usurper or usurpers will come in and will take it off us. And, it, and it's already happening in the relocation industry. I mean, I was talking to, I don't know if anybody's heard of a, of a company called Perch Peak. They are a relocation company that it's all online. They deal everything through apps. And in fact, I've got an appointment soon to do an interview with the managing director of it. Uh, keep an eye on the Mover magazine. You'll find out about that. I suspect it will be kind of scary if you're in the relocation business. And the moving industry will, at some stage, be... Um, will have these 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 companies come in and uh, and break the mold and the the moving industry has not been particularly good over the years in spotting these things it didn't spot relocation for example um, the relocation management companies took the the moving side away from the moving industry it wasn't very good at uh, spotting self storage it certainly wasn't very good at spotting lead generation and i think that's why I say we need lots of new, younger people in who can look at things differently and spot these opportunities before somebody else takes them away from us. Interesting observations there, Steve. So what do you do outside of the industry to switch off? Okay. Well, I've got quite a lot of these. I'm one of these butterfly people. I do, I do lots of things, but I don't do them very well. <laughs> I... I uh, I play guitar and sing in a pub. Well, I did and while the pub was open, but I don't play the guitar very well. I haven't got a very good voice, but I, I quite enjoy it. <laughs> and I've been, known to, I've been known to clear the place in 15 minutes. So, uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> so I do that. I go walking with the dog quite a lot, and I enjoy that. 
when I was a young man, when I was uh, 16 or 17, I was a, a, without wishing to brag, I was an extremely good table tennis player. I, um, I, I played county level table tennis and, and I got a trial to play for England once. So wow. I was a very good table tennis player and I still play now and I really enjoy it. I'm not as good as I was when I was 16, but I still play and I still do okay. And, and lots of other things. Um, I, I like to go, I do a bit of running as well occasionally. I, I actually started my own running club many, many years ago, although I don't do much of it now. I like to get out on my push bike occasionally, all these kind of things. But I say I, I don't do any of them very well anymore. And finally, I like to end my podcasts with a funny moving story. Do you have one or more to tell? <laughs> well, you know, Colin, there are, these, there are people who remember jokes and there are people who don't remember jokes. You know, uh, there are some people that can sit at the dining table and tell jokes all night. And there are other people that the following morning can't remember any of them. Well, I'm, I'm one of those that can't remember jokes at all. I've never been any good. <laughs> <laughs> I've just always been hopeless at it. But you do pick up these things. I'll tell, tell you one story that, that I, I'm sort of, sort of ashamed of, really, but it was kind of funny. When I was on the road, um, I spent years on the road for, for Avalon, driving 70,000 miles a year and, and seeing five people a day. And I used to get my calls come through every Friday on an answer phone machine uh, for the following week. And I, So I came home one Friday night and I was listening to the answer phone. And there was one call the following morning. The first call on the Monday morning was in Norfolk somewhere. And it was a Mr. Smelly. And, and I thought... I thought that can't be right. His, his name can't be Smelly, and I, and I was really worried about it because I, I was only you know twenty five or something. I didn't know how to deal with these things. I'm not sure I do now, but I, I thought well, I can't just walk in and say hello, Mister Smelly. His name might not be Smelly; it might be Smiley or something else. You know, she maybe just wrote it down wrong, or I misheard it on the answer phone. I can't do that. And anyway, I just didn't know what to do, and I and I really didn't sleep well that whole weekend. Anyway, on the Monday morning, I got in the car and I drove there. And it was a little village somewhere in Norfolk. And I couldn't find it. It was long before the days of Saturn and all these things. And so I did what, what everybody did in those days. I, I, I drove to the village post office and, and said to the lady, you know, I'm, I'm looking for this address. And you know, I gave her the address. And she said, oh, I don't know. They, um, who lives there? I said, well, I, I don't know. I've got this name, Smelly. So, oh, yeah, the smellies. Yeah, they live just up the road here on the left-hand side. And they told me where to... <laughs> oh, great. At least I, I now know that the name actually is Smelly. So, you know, that's, so that's... Anyway, I drove up the road and quite a nice house and walked in. There was this very attractive lady came to the door and, and uh, I said, uh, morning, Mrs. Smelly. It's um, Steve Jordan here. Have a look. Oh, good morning, Mr. Jordan. She said, do come in. So I came in and, and you know, she introduced me to, to the little smellies that were running around and, and, and the smelly dog and all this kind of thing. And, <laughs> and, and, and I, they were moving out to New Zealand. And she said, uh, so I'll, I'll, um, you know, I'll show you around the house. And, and so she showed me around the house and everything. And, and then she said, I'll just, I'll just give Smelly a call. He only works up the road. He can come down and, and uh, have a chat to you. So sure enough, uh, Smelly turns up five minutes later and, Hello, Mr. Jordan. Yeah, I love to, you know, Jim Smelly here. And, so, and anyway, everything was fine. And I was really congratulating myself in, in managing to achieve this, this en entire interview without um, cracking up. 
And anyway, we, we, we did the job and I worked out the quotes and everybody was fine. And, and I was just about to, you know, I was actually walking out the door, really, with my briefcase in my hand. And I said, you know, what, why, why are you going to New Zealand? You know, what's the attraction of New Zealand? And they said, oh, I'm going to join my brother out there. Um, you know, he's got a business out there. And, and so I'm, I'm going to join him. And, uh, and I said, oh, and so, so what, what business are you in? He said, uh, oh, pig farming. He said, we've been in pig farming for centuries. <laughs> At which, <laughs> which point my my I lost, I lost it. I'm afraid I lost it. <laughs> oh, brilliant! <laughs> I never actually realised until you started talking about that story. I mean, obviously, when inquiries come in and the salesmen have got to go out there, trying to get people's surnames right now and again, they must. They, everybody must end up being in the same situation as you at some point. Just think, well, is it this or is it that? Yeah, yeah which can it be? <laughs> There you go. Very, very we all, good. We all survived. No blood was spilt. Excellent, excellent. And did you get the job, by the way? I did, Actually, we did, yes. I, <laughs> I mean, I, I didn't really expect to, but we did. Yeah. <laughs> excellent. Steve, many thanks for today. I appreciate your time, and thank you for being a guest on Moving Matters. It's been a pleasure, Colin. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. I sincerely hope you enjoyed episode 15 of Moving Matters. Please rate, review and subscribe in your favourite podcast player of choice. And please tell your industry colleagues about Moving Matters. My thanks and appreciation go to Steve Jordan of The Mover magazine for giving up his time to record this episode. Thank you again, Steve. If you would like to know more about The Mover magazine, then you will find links within the show notes for this episode and on our webpage, movingmatterspodcast.co.uk. And please, if you have a funny moving story that could be relayed to our listeners, or you would like to be a guest on the podcast, then do reach out to me by completing the contact form on our webpage, movingmatterspodcast.co.uk. Well, that is all from me. So until next time, keep moving. <laughs>